All right, guys. Well, we are jumping in to Mark chapter 10 this morning, and we're coming to a little bit of a controversial text. And what we're going to see this morning is that these topics of marriage and divorce have always been somewhat controversial. And I was actually thinking about that this last week as I was watching a movie called Manhattan, which was... um, directed and written by Woody Allen. Has anyone seen that movie before? It was like made in 1979, so maybe not many of you have seen it. Um, It's kind of a crazy movie. It's got a really weird theme. So essentially, Woody Allen's character named Isaac is like this 42-year-old guy, and he's dating a 17-year-old girl, which is disgusting, right? And um, so he's got this super immoral thing going on, and then his best friend in the movie is um, married but also has a mistress on the side. And then kind of midstream in the movie, Woody Allen's character decides to dump the 17-year-old for his best friend's mistress. And it's just this crazy sort of cesspool of sin going on. And mid-movie, Woody Allen's character goes to confront his best friend because his best friend has decided that he wants to get back with his mistress that Woody Allen is currently dating. Okay, if you got lost in that, just know both of these guys are really morally jacked up and one of them decides to confront the other one. So he goes to confront his friend and they're having this conversation about God and about morality and about all these different things, but it's evident that neither of them really believes in morality or believes in God. So they're trying to have this conversation about what's right and wrong, but they're not really getting anywhere. And they end up, actually, in this science classroom. Woody Allen's character is leaning up against this gorilla skeleton. And this is what he says to his friend about this whole immorality thing that's going on. What are future generations going to say about us? By the way, this isn't in the Bible. I have my notes in here, okay? Um, What are future generations going to say about us? You know, someday we're going to be like him. And he points to this gorilla. I mean, he was probably one of the beautiful people. He was probably dancing and playing tennis and everything. And now this is what happens to us, you know? Yeah, it's very important to have some kind of personal integrity. You know, I'll be hanging in a classroom one day. And I want to make sure when I thin out that I'm well thought of. You see what Woody Allen's pointing out in the narrative of this movie? He's pointing out that there is actually no basis for marriage or personal integrity or morality in your relationships based on this widely held cultural view that there is no God and you basically just end up six feet under. So this is basically what Woody Allen is saying. We come from apes and life is meaningless Therefore, we should have personal integrity in our romantic relationships. Doesn't it make sense if that is kind of the baseline cultural narrative, if that's what people believe, that you would see the mess that is our society when it comes to marriage and divorce and all these different things. And what the passage we're going to look at, it might sound sort of harsh, a little bit mean-spirited, on Jesus' part to your ears because you sort of are floating in that world. But I think at the end of the day, it will be refreshing to our souls 
if we will accept what Jesus has to say, do away with what our culture has to say, and embrace him as the authority on marriage. This is essentially what Jesus says to combat that cultural narrative. That marriage has such a grand design that we should be marked by otherworldly personal integrity in our romantic relationships. In other words, the basis for our approach to marriage and to all of our relationships is God's design of them. He's the creator, he's the designer, and he has an amazing purpose for our lives in all things, but in marriage in particular. So the text that we're looking at this morning is Mark chapter 10. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. So essentially, we're going to look at this text and answer three different questions from this interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus and Jesus and his disciples. We're going to answer the question, what is marriage? What is divorce? And finally, why should we be marked by otherworldly personal integrity in marriage in particular? So let's just take those one at a time. First one, what is marriage? So we're sort of coming in midstream in this argument that Jesus is having with the religious leaders of the day. And they want to know what Jesus' view on divorce is. And just so you know a little bit of background, the Pharisees had a vested interest in his answer to their question because divorce was rather easy in those days. It was sort of like a lease agreement. I don't know about you, but I've always wanted to lease a car. And the reason is because it's very low maintenance and you always get a nice car. And so that was sort of their view of marriage. You go, you pick out a wife. If she gets a little bit old or, you know, you don't like something about her, then you can sort of just trade her in for a new model. It's a great deal. And so they had a vested interest in protecting this view of marriage so that they could do whatever they wanted. And so not only among the religious, but also among just common people in that society, divorce, like in our society, was incredibly common. And Jesus asked them the question, what does the Bible say about it? And they say, 
Well, God said that you could write a person a certificate of divorce and you could upgrade to a new model. And Jesus acknowledges that that verse is in the Bible, but he says, you guys didn't flip far enough back in your scripture. You see, what you're talking about there is actually a concession that God made because people were so wicked, but there's a better design that God has in mind. And the basis for this marriage design is God's creation of it. So he makes mention that God created people, male and female. And then he defines what marriage is on that basis. And this is sort of a basic flyover definition, I think, that Jesus is using to define marriage. He says that marriage is God joining one man and one woman together for life. Now, if you go back to the Genesis account that Jesus is basing his words on here, you read the first chapter of Genesis, and it is one of the most glorious, amazing chapters in the entire Bible. You see, God said, God said, God said, God said. He says, let there be light, and there was light, and he creates the animals, and he creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the mountains and the seas, and he creates everything that exists. And you're wondering, as he's creating all these things, what is going to be the climax of his creation? And the climax of his creation is a man and a woman married to one another. You might think as you're reading through it that it's almost like an anticlimax. Like, really? That's it? That was sort of God's big idea? But you get the picture that God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that we see and everything that there is to showcase his design of marriage. And we see Adam created first. And God says, this is really profound. God says to Adam, it's not good that man should be alone. So Adam is in paradise. He's walking with God in the midst of the garden, in perfect relationship with God. And God characterizes him as alone. Which means he is made complete by his relationship with his wife Eve. So you remember the story, God puts him to sleep, he takes his rib out, and he fashions a helper for him. And the scripture leaves you there with this statement that the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. And this is just after their marriage ceremony where God had taken two separate individuals and made them one flesh. A man and a woman coming together in a marriage ceremony, the Bible says, is two separate people becoming 
one unit. Don't you love going to weddings? Sometimes, right? Sometimes for the food. Um, But everybody always loves the moment, even if the wedding was boring and whatever. Everybody always loves the moment when the bride is walking down the aisle. It's one of the few times in our culture that's appropriate for men to cry, right? And the guy's crying, and sometimes I'm the pastor, so I'm standing right here, and I'm watching her come down, and I'm, I get the front row seat, and, and it's amazing. But I always acknowledge in that moment that what we're getting to see in a marriage ceremony is God uniting two separate lives as one flesh, as one unit. And there's so many things that could be said about that, but what scripture says, and we'll get into this a little bit later, is that it's a profound mystery. It's amazing. It's beyond tracing out what exactly God is doing in that moment. And so what God calls married couples to do as they're being married is to believe that truth as Christians as the foundational reality of their marriage. That when you walk into that marriage ceremony, you're two separate people. And when you walk out of that marriage ceremony, God has made you one flesh. That's a truth that undergirds your marriage. And this is why this is really important. Because you're about to start living life together. And it's important that you understand as a married couple that you are one unit because everything in your life circumstances will begin to tell you otherwise. All right, let me give you an example. I remember on my honeymoon, go on our honeymoon, and we go to Jamaica. And, you know, I'm thinking, this is awesome. I'm going to get the drink with the little umbrella in it, and I'm going to lay on the beach, and this is going to be amazing. This is going to be awesome. And my wife had a different idea of what we're going to do on the honeymoon. And so my wife, um, she doesn't lay on beaches, and she doesn't drink drinks with little umbrellas in them. She's a very active person. And so we would wake up and she'd have like the agenda, like, okay, we're going to go work out and then we're going to go kayaking and then we're going to go for a hike and we're going to do this. And here's what began to happen. This undergirding reality of us being one unit was immediately tested. And I remember thinking, is that supposed to get tested on the honeymoon? Like, God, you're supposed to wait to test me until after the honeymoon. And so I had to begin, even on our honeymoon, to make choices to believe that God had performed this profound mystery of taking two people very different in temperament, very different in background, very different in preferences, and had made us one, which meant... I was going to be called from that moment on to make sacrifices, and my wife Melissa was going to be called to make sacrifices to promote oneness in our relationship rather than two divergent paths. And I'm thankful that although we've banged heads over time and although it has not always been easy, every married couple can testify to this, I do not want to sugarcoat this whole marriage thing, but I'm thankful that we've had people speaking into our lives and that over time we've made these choices to put one another first in the small things and to apologize when we don't because to be honest with you, I do not know 
how we would be facing our present circumstances had we not began to learn to do that. Because on a daily basis, right now, probably more than ever in my life, God is calling me. My wife was just making fun of me last night because I'm on my, my iPhone too much, right? I just, I check out. I just, I stare at my iPhone, right? She's making fun of me last night. Like, you got to get off the phone and spend time with the kids. You got to engage. You got to come out of la-la land and you got to jump in to the reality that we're in. And that reality is, right, five kids at home and a little baby in the hospital who just had his second surgery. And we're bouncing back and forth, and about every night, we're just looking at each other like, okay, we made it through another day. Let's pray. Let's get back on the same page. But the reason that we're fighting to do that is because we believe that God has done a miracle in our lives. That two separate lives have become one flesh. That's what we believe is the basis of this personal integrity that I'm going to call you to have in all of your relationships, but particular, in particular in this marriage relationship. So God at marriage is God joining two separate people together as one unit, which is a profound mystery and has very practical implications on your life. Okay, so that sort of sets the stage for us. That's sort of Jesus' answer to the question that the Pharisees have. Can we have sort of this lease agreement view of marriage? Jesus absolutely says no, but it leads us to the next question. If that's what marriage is, then what is divorce? Okay, here's a quick definition of divorce according to Jesus. He gives this definition in verse 9. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So based on those words, you can critique my definition a little bit, but I think it's accurate to what Jesus has to say. Divorce is people separating or a person separating what God has joined together. It is seeking to undo that profound mystery. Seeking to undo that foundational reality. Seeking to undo God's design for marriage. And so Jesus makes this blanket statement, which comes like a ton of bricks into our society. What God has joined together, let not man separate. As Christians, God calls us to never initiate a divorce. As Christians, God calls us to never initiate a divorce. His design is till death do us part. And I'm not going to be able to get into all of the bunny trails that we could go on that actually have profound and weighty implications. And I think that 
But it bums me out a little bit because I would love to be able to answer each of your individual questions. And I want you to feel free to talk to me after the service or shoot me an email if you have a specific question that I'm not able to address. Now, I want to be careful because although the Bible commands Christians to never initiate divorce, many of us have experienced situations where it seems like in a marriage there is an innocent party and then there is somebody who is doing something that so profoundly breaks this covenant of marriage that it puts the person who does not want to get divorced in a spot where they have almost no other option. And the Bible gives us a couple of examples of those situations that are not present in this text, but I want to touch on those briefly. The first one is if a Christian is married to a non-Christian. And the non-Christian says, I'm out. I want to leave. I don't want any part of this anymore. And it's because of, or at least partly because of, your faith. And according to 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, God's answer to that situation is, let the person leave. So in other words, if you're a Christian, married to a non-Christian, and the non-Christian in the relationship initiates a divorce, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, his answer to the question is, let them leave. Now the subtext of that is, seek to reconcile the relationship. Seek to lead your spouse to Jesus. But he's saying, as a last resort, if they have put their foot down and they are walking away from the relationship, let them leave because God has called you to live at peace. So that would be sort of one exception to let an unbeliever leave. The other one that's pretty well known is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. And that is on the ground of sexual immorality. So if you are married and your spouse commits adultery, participates in sexual immorality, that is grounds for divorce. Now, let me caution you, this is not a green light for divorce. Because what God has joined together, let no man separate. Remember, that's the golden rule in marriage. So that means, okay, sexual immorality, sweet, green light. My spouse committed adultery. Remember, the entire theme of the Bible is God is the perfect spouse and his wife, us, is an adulterous people and he continues to pursue us, continues to love us. So God is hard for our relationships, including marriage, even if somebody does something horrible to us, is reconciliation. But I think what the Bible is teaching here is that if somebody commits adultery with you, what they have functionally done is initiated a divorce. That is such a profound breaking of the one flesh union between husband and wife that to commit adultery, to go and get your sexual desires, needs met other, in another place is functionally to say, I want to divorce you. It is a very 
serious crime against the marriage. And the third thing that I would say, although the Bible is silent on it, but I think that if we use the mind that God has given us and we are wise with that mind, I think we would be led to this conclusion. Many godly men and women that I've talked to about this particular situation would say that this is also true. It's a, an issue that comes up a lot in counseling, for example, is the issue of abuse, right? Where, particularly for women usually, although men can be abused as well, they are at risk being in this relationship with this man or this woman. They are being verbally or physically assaulted by this person. It would be unsafe for them to be in that relationship. I think wisdom would say that that may be a time where a spouse would seek a divorce, although I would say they wouldn't initiate the divorce. The divorce was actually initiated by the abuse. But let me say again, in all of these cases, God's heart is that we love someone else in our marriage relationship that is impossible to love apart from the grace of God. That literally in our natural selves, we cannot do what God is calling us to do because it hurts so bad to be married to this person. But God's call on our church and on our lives is to live with another sinner and to give them the grace that God has given to us. And guys, I know that this is incredibly painful. Even as I talk about it, some of you are, are now thinking about the divorce that your parents went through or the divorce that your grandparents went through or somebody specific that you've sat across the table from, had coffee with, and they've just been weeping because of the way that divorce is affecting their lives. And I actually consider myself sort of a little bit distant from divorce. My parents are still married. They're actually here this morning. Um, But I realized a few years ago that divorce was much closer to me than I even realized. My dad and I were on a road trip together, and we had stopped at an IHOP And when I was really young, my dad had told me that he was married before and that his first wife had committed adultery on him, had left him, had taken a lot of their stuff and had disappeared from his life. And we hadn't really talked about it kind of man to man yet. And so we're sitting at this IHOP and I just asked my dad about his divorce and just asked him to kind of recap that for me and and share it with me. And I'll never forget just sitting across table from my dad, eating pancakes, and my dad sharing about his first marriage and his divorce and the pain. And even 30 years later, my dad just had tears running down his face, just crying, just about how much brokenness was in that and how they had made vows and how she had broken the vows and just the pain, the hurt of that. He could see God's grace in it, see God's sovereignty. He said many times, man, I'm so thankful to have been married to your mom. I mean, especially he's thankful for me, right? Because I would have never been born. Just kidding. Um, but, but it just reminded me, although I feel at a distance from it, that all of us 
probably are one sort of step away from having been profoundly affected by divorce. And so we can see the effects of our world's brokenness and specifically just disregard for the commandments of God and what he says marriage is all about. Okay. So last question. We've, we've tackled what is marriage, what is divorce. Let's tackle the last question. So why should we be marked by otherworldly personal integrity in marriage? Okay, so Woody Allen in the beginning, right? He kind of jokingly said, we should be marked by personal integrity in our relationships because one day we're going to be hanging in a science classroom all thinned out. It makes no sense, right? So what's the Bible's answer to the question of why? Why do we have the highest standards of personal integrity in our marriage? And this is the really profound answer that the Bible gives. It defines marriage further than Jesus even goes in this passage. This is what the Bible says marriage is, if you read it from front to back. God joining one man and one woman together for life to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, we maintain the highest standards of personal integrity in our marriage relationships because marriage is a metaphor for the greatest reality in the universe. Ephesians chapter 5 states this most precisely. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. In other words, the purpose of marriage is not mainly about your happiness. In fact, the purpose of marriage is not mainly about you getting your needs met at all. The purpose of marriage is that you would be able to reflect in your marriage, now or one day, to a lost and dying world what it looks like to be loved by Jesus. What an amazingly high calling. Because Jesus came to the earth to marry the most sinful, rebellious woman of all time. And part of her sits in this room today, the church Everybody in the world, including all of us, have complaints about the church. Do you know why? Because the church is jacked up. We got a lot of sin. We're messed up people. We start getting into each other's lives. You might have rose-colored glasses about the people in this room right now. Just get to know us. We're not that spectacular. And this is what Jesus has done. He has come to the earth to give his life for us. 
so that he could be in the most intimate relationship possible with us. For which the greatest metaphor in this world is marriage. So even the best marriage that you've ever seen, the most romantic, the most exciting, the most fun, the most loving marriage is but a reflection of the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church, of the love that he has for us. It's so interesting because I think one of our temptations in our society, although marriages are so broken and all of these things, is to idealize marriage. It's to believe that if we meet the right person and we hit it off and we get in this relationship, that that relationship is going to fulfill us. Okay, let me break your heart just for a second here, okay? Let me show you in scripture how long the ideal marriage lasted, okay? That long, okay? See that one page? That's Genesis 1 and 2. That's God created man and woman in his image. Let me show you how long in the Bible marriage is really jacked up, okay? That long. Really long time, right? From beginning to end, the Bible doesn't paint an idealistic picture of marriage. It paints a realistic picture of marriage. But you might not have noticed, but I'm holding one page right here, okay, at the end. And that's because the Bible actually begins the same way it ends. So it begins with this human marriage that in just one page breaks and falls apart and shatters the whole world, which is why we experience brokenness in our relationships and we see divorce and we see all of these terrible things. But this story is part of a greater story. That's the good news. And it leads us to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. It leads us to this great marriage, the marriage that can satisfy the deepest cravings of our heart. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You see, there's coming this day where the church will be dressed in white. We will be made perfect and made complete. We will have our dress on and we will come down the aisle. And that marriage will not disappoint us. 
Because Jesus is the perfect husband that you've been longing for. He's the perfect spouse who will never let you down, who has all authority and power in the universe and has leveraged that to make the climax of history be your marriage relationship with him. In other words, heaven is an eternal honeymoon that never ends. There's no disagreements. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. All of that is gone. And as we fix our minds on that hope, no matter what kind of brokenness or sin or failing we've seen or we've been a part of, our hearts begin to be filled with joy. And do you know what we have? We have the power to love the imperfect people in our lives. Because you don't have to have the perfect spouse here. You don't have to have the perfect marriage. You don't have to have the perfect relationship. In fact, you don't even have to have the perfect friendship. All the people that you know can be just like you, just jacked up people. And you can love them because they're not your savior. So here's my encouragement to all of you single people. My encouragement to you as single people is fall more in love with Jesus. Let those desires that you have for that perfect relationship or even that perfect friendship, let those lead you to the feet of Jesus. Let those lead you to his word. Let those lead you to knowing him. In fact, follow those sunbeams back to the sun and realize that the source of those longings and those desires is God that he alone can satisfy your soul. And here's my encouragement to you. In the meantime, be deeply content in your singleness and be radically centered on the kingdom of God. Don't waste your time sitting around wishing you were married. Spend your time for this great eternal reality. Okay, that's for single people. Married people, fall more deeply in love with Jesus. Spend time in his word. When you are mad at your spouse, not speaking from personal experience here, when you're mad at your spouse, you want them to meet all of your needs. You're frustrated that they don't shut the cabinets or the drawers. You're frustrated they left on on the floor or whatever it is. Run to Jesus. He's the perfect spouse. He's the one who can meet your needs. He's the one who will love you always without stopping. He's the one that your heart is longing for. And then double down on this commitment to be wholeheartedly faithful to your spouse. With your eyes, with your heart, your hands, with all of your being, go back and reread your vows. Be stout-heartedly committed to being faithful to your spouse. And then put all of your spouse's needs above your own. And what that specifically means, if you kind of fill out the context of that Ephesians 5 passage, what that specifically means is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. It means husbands, we are to be marked as servants who lay down our lives, not just in one big heroic act, but on a daily basis for our wives, putting her needs before our own. And the passage says, wives, see that you respect your husband. Give him the respect that he doesn't deserve. Get those bitter, angry thoughts out of your mind and replace them with thankfulness for the spouse that God has given you. And I think in this way, we will be the salt of the earth. There is no better way that we can reflect Jesus to the world than to have this level of personal integrity in our singleness and in our marriages. You want these cities to be transformed by Jesus? I do. Then let's double down on our commitment to be faithful to what God has called us to be in our marriages and in our singleness. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You came from heaven to earth as our perfect spouse to rescue us, to love us. And this whole life, God, is a setup for Revelation 21. We long for that day when we'll walk down the aisle to you. And although we are full of sin, our sin will have been washed away and will be clothed in white and tears will be in your eyes. And then you'll wipe away the tears from our eyes and we'll be with you forever. But in the meantime, Jesus, pray that you would help us as a church to reflect this profound mystery in our marriages and in our singleness. Help us to honor you, that you would be the greatest treasure of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.